Welcome again to the Red Dirt Agronomy Podcast. My name is Dave Deacon. This is episode 106, so thank you for making your way back again. Now, we do have a quick favor to ask of you. Please jump over and hit the subscribe button on your streaming service so you will be one of the first people to know when the new Red Dirt Agronomy Podcast drops every other week. As usual, we're coming to you from Dr. Jason Warren's research lab on the agronomy farm at Oklahoma State University. And you've joined us on another great episode. And this time we'll be talking with Dr. Andrea Yelling, whose primary focus at Oklahoma State University deals with soil organic matter dynamics and soil plant microbe interactions. So there's a pretty strong chance that you'll be walking away a little bit smarter. Now with this being a podcast, we're not able to put lower thirds on the screen. So we'll make a quick trip around the table so you will know who to tweet when you don't agree with what they're saying. We'll start with Oklahoma State University Extension Cropping System Specialist. I'm ready to go to anhydrous. I thought we were going to anhydrous. No, I have no questions about anhydrous. You just sounded really excited about anhydrous. Dr. Josh Lofton. And to his right is a guy who's devoted his life to rummaging through soil. Why well, no, I mean, that's my. that was what I was going to say. Is like, yeah, I mean, I'm going to eat the sugar and I'm going to love it. And then I'm going to get all hopped up. Those are the golden tones of Oklahoma State University Extension Soil and Water Conservation Management Specialist, Dr. Jason Warren. And across from Jason is a guy who's known as much for his fashion when he wears America's Brightest Orange, lab coat as for his work in the world of soil fertility you were almost serious enough to get me to believe you but it had been way too many years i'm like then michigan was a new add-on that my friend is oklahoma state university's extension precision nutrient management specialist dr brian arnell if you would like to ask the group a question then jump over to reddirtagronomy.com and leave your question there or send us an email directly podcast at reddirtagronomy.com and we'll discuss your question on the next podcast. And that's where we start this episode with a question submitted from the website. Thank you, Lucas from Major County, Oklahoma for writing. And now here's Dr. Brian Arnell with Lucas's question. And you are listening to the Red Dirt Agronomy Podcast. So the question is, if we're looking at effectively a felled wheat crop in Northwest Oklahoma and a fair amount of Western Oklahoma, and going to try to follow up with the double crop sorghum. How do we account for that nitrogen and what, you know, how much credit do you give that sorghum crop and how do you manage that sorghum crop fertility? And so we look at it this way. And so there's a couple aspects you got to con- consider uh, to take in your total account. And, you know, when was the nitrogen applied? How was it applied? You can credit yourself with some efficiencies on that point. You know, did you get the nitrogen on the ground and have it actually rained in? There's a lot of top dress nitrogen that never got rained in. So we have to question how much of that's actually in the soil. If we were able to get the nitrogen into the soil system, since we don't have, I mean, the loss of crop is due to drought, so therefore we aren't going to be leaching. So we don't have that downward movement. We could, in theory, have upward movement, meaning ammonia volatilization that's going to occur on the surface of a, a high pH soil. But that's that's in conditions where we have a soil pH greater than about 7.4. We have the conditions of dry and wind, but in most of the cases where this question is taking place, we're going to have soil pHs sub-7. So ammonium volatilization is going to be a little bit lower. So our loss pathways are a lot less. So we're really not worried about leaching. Ammonia volatilization is minimum. So the nitrogen would be there for the sorghum. And you could account a great amount of that, whatever made it into the ground, for that sorghum crop and be available for the sorghum crop. Now here's a caveat. No-till. This is where that value gets to be a little bit more challenging 
and also the, the existing wheat crop. So if we're in no-till and we're looking at a liquid application using UAN, whether it's streamer or flat fan, if that liquid hit the crop residue and didn't get rained in very quickly, there's a great opportunity for it to be tied up in that residue that's on the soil surface. So the dead and, and decaying material, it has not decayed. I mean, we're in a drought, it hasn't rained, decaying takes moisture, so we're not breaking it down. And so you have to say that, okay, you haven't lost that nitrogen, but that residue has to be broken down, <coughs> and that nitrogen then has to get into the soil system before the plants have capability of it, So or access to it. So you've got to start taking away aspects of that nitrogen applied to the wheat crop depending on how you applied it. So liquid in no-till, how much residue is there? If there's very little residue and you had liquid on the soil surface, and you're, you're probably pretty good. I would account 75% on a conservative level. Um, if you have a lot of residue, now you start to have to take it back. So if I'm really, really heavy residue, most of my liquid hit that crop residue or that old residue, now I might have to cut it back to 50 or even 33% immediately available. If it all works out well and it starts raining in the spring and we keep rains, that, that residue is going to break down quickly. It's not going to be available in the first 30 days, but would be available during booting and grain fill in that summer crop if we have rain, which we're probably, Josh, not going to make much of a crop on a double crop if we don't have rain anyways. <coughs> if you're looking at urea, kind of have a mixed bag there. With a dry application of urea, if you had gone out during the drought and spread it even in no-till, the way that urea prill is in a dry and low humidity atmosphere, it's going to work itself through the residue and near that soil surface. So the moisture is going to get it and you'll have some tie-up, but not near the same level of tie-up as liquid nitrogen going on the top. So it all depends on the scenario, how it was applied, was it pre-plant incorporated, uh, in season, no-till, how much tillage, and even so, that nitrogen, if it's in the soil now, there is going to be forces at work in the soil, which we'll, we'll get in, in with Andrea later about, you know, what are those forces that are going to be acting upon the available nitrogen to break down the organic matter that has not broken down over winter and the spring, which we would normally expect to. So we're going to have some microbial and plant battles, and microbes usually win. How long is that prescription good for? If, if, if everything that you talked about <laughs> relies on... Moisture, moisture, lack mm -hmm. of moisture potential is 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 great. I mean, yeah. In the past few years, we've had those heavy May rains, mm -hmm. but you know we may not get those this, this year. What what if what if we stay on the track where that we're heading on as far as moisture goes? How how will that play a role into it? It's not going to go anywhere, um, but neither is your sorghum crop. So that goes back, I think Jason said it before we started the podcast, is how much are you going to fertilize the double crop for sorghum after a felled wheat crop? I'm not. Not putting a whole lot of money in that bank, uh, especially pre-plant the current cost. We're looking at prices. Potentially there is indication nitrogen might go down a little bit. It might be a faulty indication, but prices have dropped in the last week or so. Um, and so we're looking at, do I want to spend expensive nitrogen still on a crop that we have zero water in the bank, the soil bank? No, I'm going to live off of a borrowed dime and go with what was in the wheat crop and kind of go from there. So, Josh, t on, on top of that, how, how is the potential for, sor for sorghum this year across, uh, well, western, you know, north central Oklahoma? He's looking crystal at ball. his crystal ball right <laughs> now. He's... 
He's, he's uh, finding I mean, the answer. I, Does it if, depend, if, Josh? Yeah, it, it depends. Uh, I, I mean, if you if you look at what our our potential forecasts are for hot and dry through July, I I don't think it looks good. Um, that's not to say everywhere will be, but you know, the, of course, we always get the pockets of rain and stuff like that. In some fields, it'll be good. In some fields, it'll be bad, but. You know, with the current forecast and, you know, we see rain chances out seven days, you know, especially west of 35, we see those rain chances out seven days. And by the time it's two, two days ahead of time, it's, it's basically zero and, and anything we're getting is, you know, sub half inch. So, um, I would say for, for the bulk majority, it, it doesn't look good for an outlook. And, and that's, that's one thing that we've always said about double crop or, uh, is, is don't risk it. Um, it's a stressful situation. It's a high stress uh, system. Don't don't risk it if it's already has a stress to it, and in this case, moisture stress. But can, I want to go back to what Brian said. Mm. So so that was after failed yeah. wheat crop. What about well, a subpar? So like subcrop failed. You, you well, you didn't fail. You you fertilized for sixty, but you're going to get twenty. Celebrate the twenty from what I've seen in the well, field but, would be but for the fertility. I'm with you. For the fertility so, so if we look at that, so is it, is it still that same one point three, or do you have to take some off the top? Like where where do you draw that that connection between what we typically think of of nitrogen per bushel by quick what, the, what the crop yeah. took up to potentially get sixty five, but is never going to get sixty five. Yeah, quick, quickest math you could do. The easiest math is just for each bushel you you get take off two pounds. Say, okay, I pulled 20, so I'm going to subtract 40 off the top. Now, depending on what you get in your crop scenario, you can easily skinny that down and say, you know, I want to give it, I'm going to pull 1.5 pounds off. But most people are going to be conservative in the other side that, okay, I've removed more than I'm going to expect. So two's a, two's a happy number in this environment. As drive we've been, we've had, if the wheat survived, it rooted as well as it could root. We've probably scavenged as well as we could scavenge this year. And so we've the wheat we've had has probably been somewhat efficient as far as nitrogen goes. It's going to make it, but two pounds of infra bushel. If you if you take fifteen bushel off, give yourself a, a thirty thirty pound minus of whatever you apply to that wheat crop. But again, yeah. unless I mean I'm trying to remember back in the fall at planting time, it wasn't we didn't have a had good moisture, but we never really had heavy leaching rains. No, we didn't have freaking rain, leaching rains since a year ago, if not two years ago, in most of Oklahoma. The one thing, you know, um, just thinking, like if we if you had conditions for good crop nitrogen uptake, and then you're getting your yield clipped, you're gonna have high protein wheat, maybe shriveled. <laughs> it's gonna be shriveled. low test weight. Yeah, but then uh, you know you had all that nitrogen in that plant, and and does that two pounds per harvested bushel do you, does that account for like your ammonia loss from the plant during anthesis and that, the breaking? You know, you know what I mean. No. Yeah, no, no. That's a, that's a huge aspect of wheat, which is a a poorly inefficient crop. So, Josh, this will go back a little bit of what you said. So, it, in in a timing. So, let's give it maybe on some of this grazed out wheat, or yeah. not grazed out the dual purpose wheat. Earlier planted wheat probably had a higher higher dose of nitrogen to it, had a lot more early season growth. This wheat that went blue first. Wheat is a luxury consumer of nitrogen. It's going to take out as much nitrogen as it can, put it into that leaf tissue, taking up nitrate, taking up ammonium, converting it to ammonium to then go to the amino acids. Well, in luxury consumption, you're storing ammonium 
in the leaf tissue before it converts to amino acid. The ammonium in stress times, specifically around anthesis, flag leaf through anthesis, if you have drought stress, now that ammonium accumulates, starts to become a little bit toxic, and now you have to kick it off as ammonia gas. So Bill Ron, back on the long terms, I want to say mid to late 90s, showed that in Oklahoma, we could gas off anywhere between 30 and 50 pounds of nitrogen. Boom. But I would say in that year, they had a lot better growth. So we're talking big wheat. Yeah. And then drought stress. That's, yeah. The one aspect of this year is we had drought stress so early. Yeah. We got kind of big wheat. And so we, without question, have probably gassed off some on that early applied nitrogen. In-season stuff I'm seeing right now, we had good uptake. If you put it on in January and February to places that had an incorporating rainfall, there's been uptake. But I'm not 100% sure we've gassed off. The two pounds of in, that is more of a soils loss. Because it's 1.67 pounds of in per bushel of wheat, somewhere around that 1.43, 1.67 pounds of in in a bushel of wheat. Yeah. And that two is soil losses and some plant loss. In yeah. a year where we had a better fall growth and got bigger ranker growth and then went drought stress, it, you'd easily have lost a pound of yeah. bushel. Well, and that, that kind of goes to my last point or question is, you know, when you have a crop fail like that and it doesn't ever get to physiological maturity before, mm-hmm. say, you, yep. you know, get the insurance guy out there to zero it out and then you can burn it down and plant. Yep. The, the And Andrea may be able to comment on this too, but those those plants that did not fully mature, they're not going to be as resilient to decomposition. But you're saying that they could have lost a lot of nitrogen from them as they, they were could, dying, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah, the plants that are out there are going to decompose a lot quicker than any of that residue. The here, post-harvest here's my question. Residue. Yeah. How many people that are insurance and out aren't going to swath that for hay since hay is going to be so valuable this year? have already turned out cattle. I know up in Alva they've released cattle all over the deal. place. So, you know, how much of that biomass is going to be left on the field? So, which goes back to you might have zeroed out your grain, but if we swathed it, then you got to start talking about 40, 50 pounds per ton of, of forage harvested. Oh, yeah, good point. The Boom. nitrogen that's lost from the, the tissues, mm-hmm. like you were saying, I actually wasn't aware of that pathway, for one. And, like, how much nitrogen are we talking sometimes? Like, um, you know, in in the excess, um, I think in Bill's work, which was just right out here on the agronomy farm and at La Homa, because that La Homa environment could really stress, they were documented up to 75 kilos per hectare. So that's about 70 pounds of in per acre. That was the, of all the pathways measured in Oklahoma winter mm-hmm. wheat, the the late season uh, plant loss was the greatest of all factors. Yeah, and he he did it with a like a mass balance type mm-hmm. deal. He tried to keep account of all the nitrogen, mm-hmm. and then there was that much missing. Right. And the only rational conclusion, and and he and I actually bounced back and forth the idea of somehow like directly measuring it, mm-hmm. but on small plots it's kind of hard to do. On yeah, from just the soil surface you could do it, but if you're trying to collect that gas right. quantitatively from the plant on a small plot basis. It's kind of hard to do, but it's kind of cool. That just makes me think about that stat where, like, out of all the fertilizer reply or end fertilizer, mm-hmm. up only, you know, up to half yep. actually makes yep. it into the plant. Yep. But could that actually be, no, actually a large portion makes it into the plant. It's just lost. Yeah. yeah. So so that, that half or 33% is even just plant that's in the grain. Right. Right. And so you have all that plant material that goes back in that's cycled. And so, yeah, it it's, it's definitely can be lost in there. Um, 
and it's a seasonal, just like leaching. It's a very seasonal. If we don't have leaching, we might have more plant loss. Yeah. Now, now I, I, I do want to take a quick second here to introduce our guest. Dr. Fantastic. Andrea yelling at here at Oklahoma State University. So, so Brian, tell us about your guest that you brought today. <laughs> uh, Dr. Yelling is our soil chemist uh, brought in. Andre, you've been here about a year and a half, two years? Two three? and a half Two years. and a half years now. We um, <laughs> know, most of it COVID time. So. Yeah, I know. That's right. We, we barely know her. Um, but uh, she's been great to work with. So we wanted to bring her on because her specialty is, and I want to really let her talk about is more of that organic chemistry and getting to work with her on some of the stuff I'm doing on wheat and sorghum as far as that, that organic chemistry, the microbial relationship with what's going on in the soil. And so kind of really good timing to bring her in on this conversation. Yeah, so you said it right, that really thinking about really the organic matter in soil, that's what we're focused on and specifically the carbon and nitrogen in organic matter with, um, you know, thinking about not only how soil organic matter can store carbon and nitrogen, but also the processes that lead to the release of carbon and nitrogen. Um, and, you know, we're often thinking about, you know, these two functions of soil organic matter. It obviously has to store a lot of nutrients, but we also are relying on it as a source. Um, and these functions are like seemingly opposing, right? But we're, we need to be able to promote both of these functions in soil. And so our work tries to kind of look in that soil organic matter box and all these many functions, all the many kind of chemical, you know, uh, compounds that exist in organic matter. Um, you know, we think about everything from a leaf that's barely decomposed all the way down to like an individual amino acid. So this wide spectrum, um, because they all, you know, when a microbe interacts with these different types of organic matter, then they will behave in different ways. They'll be accessible, available to that plant or to a microbe in, in at varying rates. And then the fate of that carbon or nitrogen molecule will vary depending on its you know initial chemistry. So these are the types of things we're thinking about, which it can be quite kind of fine scale mechanistic stuff happening at, you know, the scale of a micrometer or millimeter. But um, what I really like about being able to do this work here is that we're finding ways to scale it up to like, you know, plot field scale and understand kind of why it matters agronomically, which is why I love working with these guys is because they do a lot of this awesome kind of field-based work where we can go in and ask a lot of basic, um, you know, emerging questions about nitrogen and carbon. So Andrea just had a, her first master's student just defended a couple of weeks ago. And so Tanner Judd, and he, he's, he's going to go out in the real world and, and get a PhD elsewhere. But can you give like a little synopsis of mm -hmm. what his work was? Because it was really fun. Yeah, he was looking in the long-term plots, um, uh, you know, where they've been applying different rates of nitrogen for many decades now. And he wanted to look at um, how organic matter was responding to this, you know, long, long history of nitrogen fertilization. So not only the total carbon and nitrogen that, and how that's responding, but d the specific forms of organic matter that we were thinking about are, there's many different ways of kind of characterizing organic matter, but the way we do is we look at particulate organic matter and mineral associated organic matter. The particulate stuff is like the leafy detrital matter that's barely decomposed. And by definition, it's sand sized. And then we have the more decomposed stuff that is uh, silt and clay sized. You know, these are the molecules like amino acids that you can't actually see with your naked eye, but is where really the most of the nitrogen is stored is in these, in this, you know, fraction of organic matter. So in the lab, we have a way of separating out um, these different 
uh, forms of organic matter, and he was looking at how nitrogen fertilization was affecting this particulate and mineral-associated organic matter fractions. Um, and uh, also looking at kind of the biological response to um, this long-term fertilization, so specifically the biological properties that release nitrogen from organic matter. Um, and, and yeah, it's interesting. Uh, you know, we've, we found these two different types of organic matter, particulate and mineral associated, to be responding in kind of um, distinctive ways. So there's not kind of one homogenous response, you know, that, that th these different forms are particulate organic matter. If I'm remembering, I have to think back to his thesis. It was only two weeks ago, but already those memories, they fade. Um, but particulate organic matter was... Um, uh, increasing in nitrogen content, uh, which wasn't surprising, but it actually wasn't um, as, you know, large an increase as, you, as you'd expect. This is the, the fraction that should really reflect the most recent inputs, the litter inputs in the soil. Um, but we're finding that the mineral-associated organic matter is also increasing and sometimes in like a more significant way. And this is a, the silt and clay mineral-associated stuff is, is a type of organic matter we really don't I don't know, think about, I don't know about you guys, you don't think about as actively in, in kind of your soil tests and, and you're thinking about active nitrogen cycling in soils. I've always kind of figured that was one of the last things we would increase. Right. It's kind of like relatively passive. It does, depending on the system, can increase slowly and um, like the percent increase is not that big. But when you're talking about a pool that's already very large, like that's that's a significant you know increase um, where any small change has this big effect to like total nitrogen that's in the system, um, and it's you know it's this pool that we think of again as like passive inert. It's kind of once nitrogen gets in there, it's kind of stuck there. So we don't think you know of it as this dynamic pool, but we're seeing it actually does respond to management occurring. Well, in this case, on the order of like decades of research or of fertilization and management, but. It's still significant, I think, in that it's a pool that we can manage um, and we should be thinking about. But the big question now is kind of what are its what's its role when you when you're thinking about nitrogen management and fertility in general. Um, what we're learning is that this this um, silt and clay associated stuff is actually not as passive or inert. That plants and microbes have ways of accessing this this pool that we should be thinking about and accounting for somehow. Um, and it may not be enough to just look at total carbon, total nitrogen. We should be looking at these specific forms of organic matter that are in soil. Um, but that's definitely his project is going to initiate so many other follow-up projects. There was a lot that, you know, you know, as the first master's student, a lot that you learn from that process. Um, but uh, I think, you know, these long-term plots give you a lot of opportunities to answer these sort of mechanistic questions. How deep, on that project, how deep did you sample all that? Was that just surface? I that was surface? just surface, yeah. Mm -hmm. So um, we probably went too deep. I think we needed to only go in like the top five centimeters or something for some of our biological measures like nitrogen mineralization. Yeah. Um, yeah, because we found a lot of variability. Too much to see a you know real story for some of the measurements, and we think it's probably swamped out by you know some of the processes happening at you know depth that... Yeah, if you look at Zhao's stuff, which was every inch, versus Tanner's stuff, which was a six-inch sample. Yeah. If you took 
if you took Zhao's stuff to full six inches, the differences were really, really massive. If you just looked at that top one or two inches, the difference was really, really drastic. Yeah, a lot of action in the <laughs> top two. When they inches. when they've ever sampled, and you know whether this is what you guys did recently or even in the past, when they've ever really sampled these long-term studies and, like, ran ammonium or nitrate on them, do they see a trend in, like, elevated mineral nitrogen in those high treatments? Because years ago I did it, and I thought it was a shotgun blast, yeah. and I couldn't tell which, just by looking at those, you know, organic or inorganic nitrogen, I couldn't tell which one was heavily fertilized and which one wasn't, unless you looked at the plot plan. On, on mm. the inorganic <clears throat> nitrogen, the ammonium and nitrate, only after years like this do you see anything. Yeah. After good years, even the heavily fertilized tends to come back down near Where near nothing's end. been able to really yeah. happen. Just and, be, and it could even yeah. be bimodal in years, right? Maybe the check is drawn. And that's some of the stuff, the zero in and how the zero had some stuff I want Andre mm -hmm. to talk about later. But the check might be here, and it draws down, and you go up, right? So you have the low fertilized might be the lowest. The check is up there in residual. It'll have as much residual. As much residual as some of the middle rates in certain years. Well, you think about it, it's that stress. And so I, and, I, like and, <laughs> <laughs> I think it's one of these things where you give it a little bit, and it starts really taking oh, off. Is that starts, called the priming effect? The priming effect, which Bill was Ron. a Dr. Westerman. Oh, no, was not that wrong. Westerman? That's Westerman? That was pre-Bill? That was, that was uh, Dr. Robert Westerman out in the panhandle. And for those of you uh, filling out your, your vocabulary test today, the word was priming. priming. Yes, be sure and check that off your list. <laughs> Why don't you tell a story about priming, Jason? Well, I've talked too much it. already. Well, I, okay, <laughs> I, it, it's essentially, I don't know, you do it. <laughs> I can make fun of you if, I, if you well, do it. Well, my definition of priming might yeah. actually differ slightly. Yeah. Yeah, you're yeah, talking so. about nitrogen addition mm -hmm. priming. Yep. Can you define what that is? So, I'll describe it. So the, the theory that was put forward by Dr. Westman, so this would have been back, I want to put mid-80s to early 90s, and it came out of actually OPREC, so the good Goodwell stations where they documented this, is that... <laughs> what that means well, we can't get a nitrogen response on right it on that's that what way. i'm saying you put a little fertilizer so, on there you get a little priming so <laughs> what what dr westerman saw was that out in the panhandle a unfertilized check would yield better than a a slightly fertilized plot and so the theory and this goes back to you know a lot of the times in research we see results and we have to theorize you know about the income so what it took was that you 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 go out there. It's the same soil that it takes seven years to draw down to get a nitrogen response. In, in an in-rate study, the checkout yields a 20-pound rate. The theory was that when you put that low rate of nitrogen into that available nitrate ammonium into the soil, it actually kickstarts the process, and so you have this this swelling of um, mineralization. Or immobilization. I'm sure you get the swelling of immobilization yeah. by, by, microbes. by microbes. So you just kickstart the microbes. You kickstart the microbes, and, they, the microbes and then they outcompete the plants, and so you actually have this. Oh, see, swell. I'm so glad I didn't years. try to define it because that's but, exactly opposite of what yeah, I thought. Yeah, I mean, was. there's a, there is another definition that is yeah. somewhat opposite, which yep. is interesting. Um, not that I'm saying you're wrong, but no. it's like de depending on the context. Because mm -hmm. what my my uh, understanding, or it's just another kind of version mm -hmm. of priming is that you know you you are priming the microbes but in a way that it releases um nitrogen mm -hmm. and 
and facilitates yep. Yep. mineralization. But it depends. So, it all depends on like the, you know, the conditions in that soil, mm-hmm. the chemical conditions. Yep. If you're going to yeah. get more well, so uptake or release by that's the mine. I, th- I think I think I think it's the same thing, but it's that cropping cycle. When does that release come out? Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so in that drier soil, maybe in the panhandle, oh, maybe that a, release pattern it was post crop, like it came too late. Right. Well, and that's what I'm saying. Yeah. So, so uh, most of them make right, the make sense. But like out there, you know, if you have a soil that say you know you're growing corn and you do fall tillage and then it's dry, dry, and then you've got all that residue, that low, that high seed in ratio residue that's sitting there all winter and it can't decompose, and then you kill kick a little fertilizer to it, then it'll just consume all yeah. of it, and then it's probably I don't where those. I wonder if if he was doing that on long term trials because then it would be even worse in a long term study. Because yeah. that low, that check's not going to have near as much nitrogen tied up, or it's not going to have as much carbon that needs to be decomposed before you can start releasing it, right? right. That's what we're talking So, so, so yeah, so I'd have to go look back at the treatments. I just remembered what they saw. Yeah. But it'd still be the same. You still get a greater release later, mm-hmm. but... And this is what we get with the whole question about how much nitrogen is there, is that it will be there, but will it be made available during the crop cycle that it's needed, Mm -hmm. or is it going to come out during the winter if we have a wet winter and it has no value if you just did double crop sorghum? Josh, would you concur? Sure. He concurs. (laughs) Would you concur? You can have a voice this week (laughs) and you're quiet. I mean... The, but the interesting thing is, is the you know we talked about it just with one of my students' thesis about that same kind of thing, that priming effect of like whenever you integrate, and, and it, it goes back and forth to this soil health cover crops, you know, conservation practices. Is that when we when we look at things in a controlled environment, think a lab or a greenhouse or a growth chamber, to where we isolate the 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 ecology and we say oh well when we do this it shows a benefit on these microbes and these microbes theoretically would benefit a corn crop because they you know cycle nitrogen they cycle phosphorus they cycle sulfur something like that but then when you put them in an ecosystem that doesn't happen as quickly or as actively as you think because there's competition or there's is a release but then there's a higher scale organism that's consuming that release before the crops can get to them and we just talked about that of of typically that that reason why we see that Mm five-year yield drag on things like no-till and things like cover crops stuff like that is because inherently the microbe microbial population when they're growing they're able to outcompete the crop that's growing as opposed to you know whenever they're at a much smaller rate they're they're not as competitive yep. to those crops so. and, and so jason and i'll let i'm going to say on that westerman stuff i need to dig it might have been limited irrigation right so if you had more drying cycles yeah if you had more drying cycles and more periods of of low soil moisture then it's going to drag out that final release that you you prime that kicker and then there's Sorry, the whole other no. definition of priming that hap- it, that's occurring around plant roots that we think about a lot. Mm. I'll just make a quick plug for that one because that's probably no. what we think about more. <laughs> oh, yeah. But I want people to know about it. So, you know, plant roots that are actively growing are releasing, always releasing uh, like simple carbon compounds like sugars, organic acids, and these sorts of things. And microbes, when they receive it, it's like a buffet of cookies and they just go nuts and, you know, grow in numbers. They are more active, all that. And the, the idea with with this type of priming is that it's, you know, they get all this carbon rich material and they grow in number and activity, but at a certain point they desperately need nitrogen. And so they have to seek that nitrogen from the soil environment. So they mine, scavenge for nitrogen is the idea and release nitrogen 
presumably excess nitrogen for the plants right there, you know, in the, the plant root where the, they're seeking nitrogen. So there's potentially, you know, a benefit to the plant. But again, it's like, you know, different plant species differ in how they release these compounds, when they release it, you know, what microbes are in the vicinity. Can it, you know, actually lead to, I don't know, benefit to that plant? But it's something that we're thinking about a lot. The, when, when the plants release these, you know, simple carbohydrates or whatever, and it stimulates organ or the microbial activity, and then that mi- those microbes then consume the or- the, in- the organic matter, whether it's particulate or like exactly. like the mineral fraction, and and so that can explain like what <clears throat> some of the things we see maybe better than what I've always explained them on the stratification of organic matter in long-term no-till soils. And so, you know, when I started, there was a big, you know, the big deal about carbon sequestration. So we went out and took a bunch of soil samples and we would see, you know, accumulated organic matter in the surface. And then we compare that to cultivated soils and there'd be, you know, kind of an inversion. But then now, t- 10 years later, we can actually go back and we can see even like most of those fields were only five years no-till and now they're 15. And we can see even more gross stratification and I've always kind of thought, well, it's just because the microbes are always decomposing and churning 365 because it never gets cold cold enough to stop them. But then you're saying in that four to six inch zone where you are getting fewer and fewer roots, those roots are releasing stimulus mm-hmm. yeah. that could actually be causing that to decompose. Yeah. Yeah, because mm-hmm. I always figured you know, there's less go ahead. old root matter to be decomposed, and so you have that drawdown. Yeah, and then that the surface accumulates organic matter only because it's more harsh than the subsoil, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. of the drying and heat and temperature, and you know what I mean? Yeah, it's yeah. I'm following. Yeah, yeah, so it could be the roots that are less disturbed, right? There's just more opportunity for their inputs to accelerate. Yeah. Well, I don't know exactly what I'm talking about. That's why you're here. (laughs) I want you to isolate that sound right right there. We have a winner. That's not my new ringtone. Because at the surface of the soil, we'll see an accumulation Mm -hmm. of organic matter. And that has to be in part because it's not a pleasant place for a microbe to live, but yet, because, or else it would consume it really fast. And, you know, that's where you're going to have high levels of variation in temperature and moisture. And then you get down in that four-inch zone, and the, the, the environment's more stable. But if you're stimulating microbial activity with root growth, because you would, like, roots should be more stable organic matter, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because they're more yeah. recalcitrant. I mean... Have you ever looked into that kind of stuff? Yeah, the root and the like the, the comp- fate of root carbon versus yeah, root, root shoot yeah. carbon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I mean, talk a little about that. Yeah, I mean, that's. I think a lot of people are wondering. Are you talking about like a no-till? There's this stratification, like mm. high yeah. concentrations at the surface. Which you're saying, I never thought of it that way. That it's more extreme. Not that you're wrong, but just that it's yeah, more it extreme. And that's <laughs> that's it's what. It's okay <laughs> to say he's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I always assume relative to <clears throat> tilled I'm systems, it's just there's less disturbance. There's less incorporation and in physical, you know. Yeah, when you bury something, I mean, when you bury something, it's in a, an environment that's more stable right? than at the surface where it's wetting and drying and becoming hot and cold. There's actually some, I can't remember his name, some guy from A&M that he would do all this stuff looking at the variation in near surface soil temperature mm-hmm. 
and he was trying to relate that to the microbial activity and of course it's critical in cotton because there's no freaking residue so it gets you know super hot and then super cold and super hot almost daily you know i mean relative you know i mean cycling yeah yeah but anyway that's just kind of coming to my mind because we've got this stratification issue that alters our perception of what kind of carbon we can accumulate like sequestration type issues it's still highly functional Mm -hmm. and we can see benefits from no-till we just can't measure it because the effect is so shallow sometimes i mean some scientists scrape that off and then measure things right yeah but anyway uh, it's just fat i hadn't thought about the the roots root exudates stimulating things and there's the the compounds that leach from the litter above those are going to prime the the subsoil carbon too not just so that could also explain Mm -hmm. it Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. definitely there are people i think working on that sort of and in that yeah and that that would be in contrast that would be the fulvic and humics um yeah or or other uh uh-huh just like any simple molecule that releases from from litter when rain hits it like what you were saying about nitrogen that's built up and locked up in the the litter yeah because even in perennial grass systems you know, if you scrape off and farm the ground and you put it back in pretty grass, you know, you have this idealistic idea that you're going to accumulate all this organic matter. Mm-hmm. And you you will, but I wonder how stable it is. And mm-hmm. then, you know, you put like switchgrass and old world or in blue stem and all this stuff. It's deep rooted stuff. Mm-hmm. And you wait 50 years. We've got fields that, that we farmed and then we've that that's been the condition for the last 60 years when you go but you look at the accumulation of carbon and it's not that much mm-hmm. we figure it's hot too hot yeah but anyway yeah, i'm just asking welcome to the halftime show man that was a lot of great information in there for more information about what the doctors talked about you can find it of course at reddirtagronomy.com And if you have a question for the group, send an email to podcast at reddirtagronomy.com or send us a tweet. Our handle is reddirtag on the Twitter sphere. And since Dr. Yelling is with us today, we're going to try to get an answer to the question that has been brought up on previous episodes about applying sugar to the soil. You are listening to the Red Dirt Agronomy Podcast. Is, is it worth putting sugar down as an application? Who wants to take this one? Not me, Andreas. She mentioned sugar already. So <laughs> well, I, I didn't realize, yeah, that this was maybe something that folks were doing. And I can see the kind of idea behind it and that you'd prime the microbes, right? And prime nutrient release. Um, but I guess I could see there being some, I don't know, unintended consequences in the long run, potentially. Um for instance, you know, what plants are releasing into soil, it's not just sugar. It's it's like a whole suite of, you know, dozens of different compounds and that complexity matters. You know, you need to be feeding a whole range of organisms that feed on these substrates or these compounds, you know, selectively. Some prefer this, some prefer that. Um, if you just give all one type of simple, especially something like glucose, that's going to favor the growth of very specific types of microbes that you don't want in the long run to dominate your system, I would say. Also, you know, when you're adding something so simple as sugar, what people are finding is that microbes are 
decomposing, like using that as an energy source less efficiently. So that means that whenever they use that sugar to then decompose the other organic stuff that's in the soil, they're going to burn off even more carbon as CO2 in the process. So you could in the long run have a loss of carbon. Potentially, if you're doing this over and over and over again, you're kind of revving up the release of carbon as CO2 versus, you know, when you have basically microbes will decompose different types of compounds at varying efficiencies. And you don't want all of your carbon to be released as CO2. You want some of it to be staying in your system and cycling and, you know, remaining sequestered. You need organic matter, right? You need to be at least maintaining it or building it. So, yeah, that's my first so, answer. And so you also... No, not me first. <laughs> no, back off. I'm gonna come back uh, we'll come back. Okay. I have I have oh, a no. critical question. <laughs> Questions first, comments second. Okay. Well, so let me. But no. You, so you mentioned this, and so we're talking about the priming and these applications on whatever crop might be at planting. So if it's a summer crop, it might be in furrow. Yeah. Uh, it might be in season on wheat. It might be top dress. You kind of mentioned something off the air that I think would be important sure. is that the plants will signal when they need exactly. it, and so this very might then application made by somebody. It's very may not fit that plant's actual need or the soil's mm-hmm. need. So, can you yeah. kind of expand on the the plants will release yeah, when so needed? This this release this exudation we call it this release of the compounds that is happening around the roots is we're finding often timed with you know periods of high nitrogen demand. So you know you want that to be in synchrony the the end release and end demand. So if you're adding sugar at you know I don't when did you say that folks are. So Thinking with summer adding? crops, it would probably be pre-plant or in furrow. Uh, some of the stuff I have is applied uh, on the soil ahead of planting, mm-hmm. or it would be uh, maybe top dressing wheat, whenever sure. that is, which could be December through March. Right. So that sugar is going to have an immediate effect. Like you see within hours stuff happening. That's what we see in the lab. And it's a very, very quick spike and a very immediate drop off. Um, so you want that very like, you know, small window to happen at exactly the right time and I would guess that a lot of that release is not happening exactly when the plant needs it for growth or, or it's a high opportunity for loss I guess <laughs> or a mismatch you could say. Well, um, well because kind of what you're saying and let me see if I get this right is that it's it's not long term. No. Like you're, a, you're never going to get like this. candy. Yeah, and and, and it's the exact same thing that we see is, you know, whenever we till ground or we burn residue, when we break those long chain carbons, we can explode populations. Mm -hmm. And if you if you look at like things like soil health, you're talking about nitrogen, which, you know, uh, you know, exchanges. But if you talk about just like soil health. I, I can make the healthiest looking soil right after I till mm-hmm, if mm-hmm. CO2 respiration is your indicator for yeah, soil health. Yeah, on your, your definition. <laughs> yeah, and so, and so, but what we found is that like within weeks after we've tilled, the population, the total microbial carbon biomass is significantly lower than when we started because the population crashes right. because they either mm-hmm. run out of sugar, they run, or they run out of carbon, they run out of nitrogen, they run out of something, mm-hmm. and then your population ends up lower than than you had it originally right so i and, and kind of like what you said it's it's more than just sugar exudates or that's in that exudates you know like signaling proteins mm-hmm. and stuff like that are all involved so right. it's not just the fact of you get you get rhizosphere sugar and it these exchanges happen it's 
it's you know dedicated you know the plant telling the microbial mm-hmm. r- the rhizosphere microbes this is what we need to do right now and right. same thing happens when you nodulate you know it, you release the signaling protein and then you start forming the the, mm-hmm. the gall and so like it's it's more than just sugar and sugar is is so transient like you mm-hmm. said hours it's it's coming mm-hmm. gone. Let, mm-hmm. let me just get, and I'll let you have your comment, just to clarify, because not clarify, but there's two applications. There's those that believe that are heavily reliant on sugar and those who are heavily reliant on molasses. Is there a difference between sugar and molasses as far as? One will be a lot harder on a pump. <laughs> <laughs> Not if you put enough water in it, because this is mixed with water. I'm, I'm just, I just wanted to get that out there. That you know, there is, there's a, a heavy belief that it needs to be molasses, and I'm not 100 uh, yeah, percent sure about any. What about brown sugar? I don't. It's got both. I don't know either. I don't know. Okay. Yeah. I don't. I don't That's know the enough. the carbon <laughs> dynamics of the different yeah. sugar compounds. Me so no. I don't know if I'm. Yeah. Molasses chemistry. Anyone? Yeah. I, don't know. <laughs> I, I googled it, and it's just as uh, uh, resulting from refining sugar cane. But yeah. but but still still yet you know compared to like Andrea is saying is that you know it it says it when it wants it the likelihood of us being able to exactly time yeah. the hours or well, days that that the plant specifically needs it is probably I'm very also going to guess Andrea that you know we spray it once and it's done the plants are cons- constantly during demand so it's not like oh, yeah. they hit it it's just this. Constant release, Constant yeah. Release. It's not one pulse, you yeah. know. Yeah, it's a steady release. All right, mm-hmm. sorry, your question. Well, and Josh kind of ruined it for me, but <laughs> I mean, so like I when you do it in the lab, right? It, it, do you see what Josh is talking about? When, if you add you know, glucose or whatever to a soil in the lab, mm-hmm. you'll will you see a spike in like the respiration that's much higher than the untreated, mm-hmm. and it, are you measuring the release of CO two at a at a magnitude that's much greater than just the sugar being decomposed. I mean, you're seeing... Yep, yeah. So okay. we have a way of oh, actually saying they're decomposing even more than just the sugar. It's like the sugar plus the carbon that's in the soil already. Yeah. Um. Yeah, so we use isotopes to do that, which is fun. If we had more time, I'd talk about isotopes. But um, no, that's what we're we're looking at is like the sugar... You know, some microbes might receive that sugar and only decompose that sugar. Like you see a buffet of cookies and you're there for hours, and that's all. Well, you I know. I mean, that's my. That was what I was gonna say. Is like, yeah. You, I mean, I'm gonna eat the sugar and I'm gonna love it. Yeah, but and eventually, then I'm gonna get all hopped up, and then I'm gonna crash. Yeah, but sometimes if it's just a small enough, if it's if it's not too much sugar, that's the thing with these priming studies we do in the lab is you're trying to find that sweet spot, and that's what plants I think are trying to do is that sweet spot of just enough, like the tiniest little sprinkle of sugar. This is I'm anthropomorphizing too much, but the still you know just a tiny amount of sugar to just get the microbes barely going so that they then you know are seeking nutrients elsewhere. Otherwise, if you flood the system with sugar, like sometimes we overdo it accidentally with our sugar treatment in the lab, and yeah, they. They are, there's this huge boom in CO2 respiration and this massive crash, and the, all they did was eat that sugar and nothing else. Yeah, but like, I get fatter when I do it. But <laughs> you're saying <laughs> you're saying that the soil could actually, which ain't fat is is organic matter. Okay, so I'm going. okay, you're okay. saying the soil well, could actually can we lose get a flow chart here. Right? It could in the yeah. long run, yeah. So, but okay, let let's let's check this with environments. Let's say. Somebody's now in the corn belt, and we have really, really have heavy corn residue and high organic matter. <laughs> you okay? Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> he takes objection to this. <laughs> I mean, would you? Would it be less 
or, or better if you're already in an environment that has a ton of residue on the surface and high, high organic matter. I mean, in our environment, we're kind of already marginal. It's hard for us to make organic matter. Uh, we're hotter. I, I'm just wondering if you would expect if we mi- went to Michigan or, or and then added the sugar. And added the sugar versus our soil environment. Mm. Ooh, it's hard to say. I guess then, yeah, you might have more, you know, various substrates that the microbes can can decompose while they're going nuts on the sugar. Um, so maybe there wouldn't be as much of a massive boom and crash. Maybe it'd be needed somehow. I always assume that no matter what we're dealing with in agriculture, that it works somewhere. Yeah, somebody. The thing about it, it's, you know, it's it's fun. To, it's easy to poke fun and be critical. But the thing about it is, somebody observed this. Yes, absolutely. Well, a benefit that they perceived yeah. was sufficient to market this product. But and, I, and so it has happened somewhere. I, I think that the thing we learn here is that it's scientifically based. That there's yeah. merit to well, it. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. she's it's, telling yeah. us it's, what happened. If you want to get rid of organic matter, you can put a little sugar on. Well, but I mean, even <laughs> even beyond that, the the science behind it is justified. Yeah. It's yeah. just maybe misplaced where the science is. Is that the plant releases these same sugars that we would put in so through why would a we plate. spend our money on it? Yeah. But well, but we're what we're trying to do is accentuate you know accentuate the what the plant's already doing you know and try to over overdo and overproduce. But you know, like you said, just a little bit extra sugar can throw the whole thing exactly. into a whack mm-hmm. and so you're talking about nutrients and you talk about you know i don't know if you'd go into a toxicity range but you know you put micronutrients at too high a rate and things go oh, bad yeah. and it sounds like the same thing could happen yeah. is if you you know add in six more granules of sugar in mm-hmm. you know in a rhizosphere and, could go really right you know by the way when we were doing the, the off time for rates we were talking at rates about five pounds of sugar per acre is is the stuff we we were telling andre about calculating mm-hmm. so so that the group knows that when she's talking about these rates it's that five pound per acre well i want i want i want to ask a, a similar question so there's been work and i can't remember the outcome of it but there's work and, and you know discussion about like oh i've got so much residue i've got to like break down some of this mm-hmm. residue yeah and it's kind of one of them deals where i'm like mm, well what is too much residue it's really you know too much residue is an amount of residue you can't plant through yeah but then there's this interest in people breaking that down sometimes and one way that they suggest you could do it is by using a flat fan nozzle to put out U- uan or mm-hmm. something like that well, would sugar do that like in like on the surface you know what we're talking about up to now was in the soil but on the surface residue because that's where a lot of people get i mean i've never heard anybody say i don't i'm just tired all this organic matter but they will say i've got too damn much residue to get my planter through yeah and and people are selling a flat fan sugar slash molasses over residue to increase breakdown yeah, it does. But what what is what is limiting decomposition in these systems? <clears throat> well, it, a lot of times, to be honest, it it's the lack of moisture right. at the surface. Right. I was going to say, yeah. you know. just add water, and there it will yeah. go. Well, th- and there's <laughs> well, there's you a... could add water. <laughs> <There's>... Yeah, <laughs> but it's hard to get a big enough truck to add that much water. I mean, other uh, irrigation, no. I'm being. Yeah. Facetious, but yeah, you're. I think you're. Yeah, absolutely I don't right. know. Yeah. No. But it's a lot of in your yeah. your less lower rainfall environments. You know, I was in Ohio the, uh, mm-hmm. last week, and we were in cornfields, 
and it's kind of c- cool because like they had all this freeze thaw that had broken up their soil. They almost oh, yeah. looked tilled, but mm-hmm. they were twenty five year old no till fields, but they didn't have a lot of residue on them. But then you go out in western Kansas if they'd had a good crop or I Dakotas. Mean, it, I mean, or the Dakotas, Dakotas are exact same way. The, those residues could look like they looked the day it was harvested, mm-hmm. depending on how dry it was. Well, and it's it, it's funny that you mentioned that because. I was talking with a, one of the video projects I'm working on. Um, I talked with a, a producer out in Major County, I believe, and he he has been no-till forever. And he said probably this year he's after this wheat crop he's probably going to have to go through and just do a light till on it. And mm-hmm. I, my brain was like, why? But now I kind of understand maybe why he may have to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some. I mean, sometimes there's a perception that they have too much residue. I personally, I mean, yeah, I mean, you you get ten ton biomass from forage sorghum cover crop or something like that. That's pretty hard to drill through. But through regular ro- like crop rotation, you can have yep. some issues with like you know 250 bushel irrigated corn. Irrigated corns are it can yeah. be an example, but we can usually get through it. Of course, we. A lot of times in the panhandle, we don't have to worry about it because all the crap blows in the ditch. But. I was about to say it's. You know, it's well, but this is this is the corn on corn on corn is where they come up with this. They're going two fifty. Yeah, to they're wanting to kind of knock and, down that surface residue yeah. so they. Although can I've get I've seen it. some Central Oklahoma dryland guys that think they have the same problem, and I'm gonna I'm not a hundred percent. No, you know, hundred bushel corn is not going to create this problem, especially if you grow it year after year. Now, if you can grow somehow grow a hundred bushel corn in rotation with a hundred bushel wheat and continuously mm-hmm. do that you might get a little bit too much Th- there's a lot of interest after last year we had a really big straw crop last year in a couple of years and there, there was some interest in in these i wonder what you, i wonder what would be cheaper if you right now with fertilizer prices i wonder what kind of co- what, of course i guess we're not going to worry about residue because we're not going to have much but i wonder what the price point on the sugar deal is well it depends so i mean some of it's great value and some of it's a high-end stuff I, i've you know i've been told people just love putting Five ga- five pounds of great value granulated sugar on, and others go with a more specialized glucose product. You talking and about some they go going to molasses. Walmart and get a it? pallet of great value sugar at Walmart hmm. and spray like the granular sprinkling it, it that way. Yeah, just put it in, put it in a tank of water and spray it on the okay, ground. Okay, so it is in a liquid form. Yep. That's what the yeah. they, is. they solubilize the the in a herbicide application. I might put it in their nitrogen application. Hmm. Well, I learned something. Hours. <clears throat> Sorry, that's just all I got to say. <laughs> Hours <laughs> is how long it takes for that to be consumed and just totally yeah. gone. So I d- Really? Yeah. yeah. It's That's it. why I feel like you'd yeah. have to dial it in like real good for it to happen well, now. exactly. And then it's way. also just a it's a shot too. It's yeah. I mean it's, it's just, just an one instantaneous pulse. one shot yeah. and you're done. Yeah. Well then how long would how long could that priming if in so that's a good damn point. It is so if I'm I'm looking at this like from a surface residue issue, I'm gonna spray that out there. You're saying if I get good conditions for the activity of microbes, it'll eat that sugar quickly. And then what? And then once it consumes that, you know, if it's under the soil, you know, you've got some stable environment for that elevated population to kind of play itself out. But if it's on the surface of the residue, right? Not well buffered, right? It's not, and not yeah. well buffered. I mean, I don't know what the microbial community of a straw 
wheat there's, straw. There's a lot yeah. there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is there? Mm-hmm. But how long do you think it would persist after it consumed that, Not that long. sugar? Yeah. I don't think there'd be kind of a cascading effect necessarily. I don't know if you're getting at that. But That's what I'm getting at. Yeah. I, I, I think it'd probably be like this, you know. With an hour, boom and bust sort of so thing. I'm, I, so I, I shouldn't put sugar on straw to reduce my residue load then? Well, but but once you go, you know, you go back to the whole thing on what's the limiting factor. And even in very wet environments, you still have corn residue that hangs around for a long amount of time, not because of the moisture. And it's not because of carbon. It's it's not unlocking new carbon that's the issue. It's it's nitrogen. Nitrogen, yeah. You got that. Yeah. And, and out I mean, of balance. That's why the UAN that, that has is, always been. That is a, why so the UAN is there. And there's yeah. some, once again, there's some science behind it is yeah. that you have this 70 to 1, 60 to 1 yeah. residue that you're providing nitrogen yeah. so it gets closer to that 25 to 1 so you can break it down. But is it misplaced because you're you're always going to run into what is that next limitation so, so does here, it turn into phosphorus does it turn into moisture here's here's one of your challenges when you're talking about this this residue and, and i'd be curious what andre but let's say i flat fan my residue and it rains the next day uh how much was of that urea ammonium and nitrate was just immediately washed off and I, and this is something I'd kind of like to look at because I do wonder when we do our nitrogen timings is if I apply on a straw residue of flat fan, how long, what's a rain fast? Meaning how long until it washes off? So a small particulate where I'm getting lots of little droplets okay. instead and, and really spreading it out. Thank you. It's a just, mist. Yeah, <laughs> it's a it. mist. And so, you know, I assume if I applied it right now and it rained four hours later, all that's going to wash off mm-hmm. if I have a good rain. If it's a day later, majority. So I'm kind of curious is how long would it take to not have a washing rain before the majority of that was actually attached to or incorporated into that residue? I, I don't I don't know if you would get per se incorporation, but as much as like how much, how fast does that, that breakdown integration start by the microbes microbes Mm -hmm. is is like what is that timeline to where you're it's such a limiting factor that you're starting to break down that carbon so much that that is now integrated into microbial bodies and therefore not (laughs) no longer tied up because i think that's the issue we get is that it it gets integrated in those microbial bodies and then is now within a you know microbial cycle of, of constantly breaking down so i mean how fast would that go? I mean, would that go within, like you said, within hours? Or Maybe. I guess I'm wondering how this is applied because if it's just a mist, like it's a mist. barely yeah. moistens things, right? Yeah, it's there's not enough moisture. In fact, it's going to be such a high salt content more right. than likely yeah. that you're, you're, you might even have a little bit of anti- antimicrobial within that salt because I don't know how safe urea ammonium nitrate would be because, I mean, it's salt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess I imagine there ne- needs to be some critical like level of moisture for mm-hmm. that to even start to. I'd like, assume you know going, if you could do that in a high humidity environment where there's no rain, that'd be a mm-hmm. perfect window. But yeah, well, and and then and then going back to that same discussion is that sometimes the limiting factor is the bacteria that that is going to respond to this aren't the thing that needs to break that down. Sometimes the fungi need to be mm-hmm. the one because it's yep. too long chain of carbon for bacteria to go in and eat those bonds so now you need the fungi right we need their oxidative enzymes jason you were you were forming a thought ready to take on the world with a great question well because uh do you do you do a lot is mostly nitrogen mineralization and dynamics and carbon do you ever i mean these plants when they're looking 
you know, like phosphorus and potassium, those are all generally associated with the mineral component of the soil. And, you know, we can talk about, you know, fungi and things like that, mycorrhizal fungi and all that stuff that are interacting. But with the going back to this, like, root exudates priming the microbial community and, you know, mentioning about how they can, like, direct those microbes to do certain things that they want, will they utilize that to, like, try to get other nutrients out of the organic matter or is it mostly just the nitrogen they're looking for? Mm, no, I, I think there are folks that are showing <clears throat> they, they do this for phosphorus and other, you know, anything that's potentially locked up in some way in inorganic matter or associated with minerals, that there are ways that these exudates stimulate the microbes that can solubilize phosphorus, for instance, and release yeah. it or... Um, you know, other micronutrients, I'm sure, like that, that are copper involved. or something. Yeah. Isn't I've, copper mostly up in, tied up in organic matter? Isn't that where the copper... I believe I so. I believe so, But I don't know if there's too many people think... Look, I, I just am not f- familiar with the research on that, but... Molybdenum, I don't Molybdenum. know. Molybdenum. No. I, well, I had copper questions yesterday, so it's interesting you said well, that. Well, and, and that's, that's why I'm asking. You know, you get all these... As we go forward and try to increase the performance of some of these crops, and you start picking up you know, interest in trying to figure out where some of these microbes lie mm-hmm. as far as need to apply them and all that stuff. And they're very hard to analyze, I would suspect, mm-hmm. especially if the plants are directing the orchestra to try to get them out of organic right. matter. That's why in the lab we do a lot of, like, simulate the, you know, action of a root. Um, or we have other ways of actually tracing, you know, if you grow a plant, okay, this is getting into isotopes again, but if you grow a plant in the uh, atmosphere where the carbon dioxide is kind of labeled with a tracer you can then trace that carbon as it's fixed from co2 it turns into plant carbon then you can trace it down into root deposited carbon exited carbon and say kind of how how it's priming then the how it's released into the soil quantitatively how it is influencing nitrogen release are you that's said, awesome are that, you that's said, bad but it's very right expensive. That, that's cool when are you when are you start doing that once I can get a, a chamber set up that allows you. it's it's very mechan this is not something like on an agronomic Mm-mm. applied sense is at all kind of I think practical it's more for like the mechanisms in a greenhouse grow in a chamber but that's in your yeah. that's in your five-year plan mm, 10 years ten, mm, ten years but this is this is the kind of stuff under it that we need here is because yeah we're living in the field but we still have to understand these the 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 mechanistic concepts of what we do, mm-hmm. so we can take. So yeah, that's I'm, why I'm really loving like, your. I like working with you guys because some of my stuff is a few steps removed from like the applied and the agronomic work. But I like that you're, I don't know, appreciating it, and we can kind of go back and forth and making those connections. Because I think once like the mechanisms, we you know solve some things that it's a few steps before we understand its relevance in the field, and yeah, so. I'm happy to be here. So she's yeah. the reason why you take the big freezer out to Goodwill mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you do the the soil sample and then you you put it in the freezer. And then you drive so with a that's highway another researcher, right? Yeah, it, okay. it's another researcher. No, so actually that is due to her 
background, but not that. So what okay. we do, we, we have to haul a big deep freeze with us every time we go sampling for deep soil cores. And he gets and a so, highway patrol escort from, yes, the, from it, all the way out it, there. No stopping. I'd like to know if to that's happen. my fault. No, it's not your fault. <laughs> okay. But so the point is what we're doing is we're pulling these cores and the researchers up in Kansas that want the data, want the immediate moment of what's going on as far as organic matter, and ammonium and nitrate. If we were to leave those in filled moist conditions at room temperature, Mm -hmm. the microbes are still churning so we got to freeze it as quick as possible at least to shut down that process mm -hmm. so we can measure the mineral content of ammonium and nitrate at that moment because if we just set and let it let it just be filled moist for a while mm -hmm. then we might still allow some mineralization or or because we've now induced oxygen we've introduced a whole lot of characteristics mm -hmm. within that that one meter deep pore core wow. so you need like a, a large vehicle that can store so freeze. yeah so we we actually bought a chest freezer from lowe's and have a generator and put it on a trailer oh, and wow. i wish it was colder but that's about you know okay. we can what <laughs> well because buying several hundred you know pounds of dry ice gets you put on certain lists that it, you why don't get you just of. get a swan's <laughs> truck huh why don't just you just get, get a swan's, swan's truck yeah, they even have compartments then. Hey, Brian, you know, if on. Kansas would give me the money, I'll buy a Swan's truck and drive it out of the Panhandle. <laughs> but no, so so Andrea and I right now are actually working on soil sampling protocols for, for sorghum trials to understand what delaying nitrogen does to that microbial community. And, and and the fungi community with, with the crop. So we're, we're really trying to dissect, you know, how do we do this? When, when it comes to this sampling, when I've done it for other, other people, we pull a sample, then we have to clean every, everything with isopropyl alcohol or something. Mm. So between samples, it's, it's really important, all uh, latex gloves between samples so we don't have any DNA shifting, those things like that. So it's a whole other world of having five undergrads running around with, with soil probes and five gallon buckets you just knock out after yeah. the end of each plot. <laughs> Josh, you look like you're you're, you're forming I'm, thoughts. Ready I'm ready to, to go to anhydrous. I thought we were going to anhydrous. <laughs> well, we can. Do you want to ask about anhydrous? No, I have no questions about I have no questions either. You just no, sounded really excited about well, anhydrous. Well, because we were getting it, dumb jokes, and Dave, Dave it, has his anhydrous joke. It, it's a well-worn <laughs> uh, anhydrous joke. Well, I, actually, I shouldn't use the word my, my dad actually had an anhydrous. She actually was from Michigan, but she she moved to Oklahoma many years after that, and then like lived three doors down from my grandparents. Does that make you feel better? That's the anhydrous joke. That was a real <laughs> person. No, no, I didn't think no, so. No, 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 no. You no. were almost serious enough to get me to believe you. Right. It had been way too many years. Yeah, I'm good. like, well, the Michigan was a new add-on. Well, yeah, that was it, that it, was it, new. I, I had to go back to my actual grandpa. <laughs> he, he moved from Michigan. I was like, how can I make this more believable? Yeah, yeah. that's how. And then there was another one in there too. I. I forgot what it was, but it'll it'll come back. So the 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 takeaway for all of the, the the producers that are listening, why why is microbial life so important to to the plants of Oklahoma? That's a big question. That is a big question. <laughs> You're asking me to give the kind well, of take yeah, home there. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's just such a, a delicate interaction, like this plant microbial interaction that serves to you know release nutrients for plants and it's a hard one to try to you know simulate or, or replace i guess by you know if we were to add sugar to soils so i i don't know i think i feel like there should be a lot of focus on building the you know organic matter and supporting many different functions in soil not just one sort of process or pathway that sort of reductionist way of i think approaching a system is not 
sustainable, Let, but that's the yeah, I guess the way. I and and maybe I, I want to go ask you this question, Andrea. So beyond building organic matter and, and those characteristics, mm-hmm. what's your opinion about? Man, you know the 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 community thinking that we can manipulate that population within a natural environment, right? Like microbial husbandry. Yeah, people use that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, well, they, yeah. I mean, there's there's been talk about genetically mm-hmm. modifying mm-hmm. the yeah. microbiome of the freaking soil. Yeah, I mean, what are you thinking I'm, about that? I I am waiting on more research. I guess <laughs> I'm skeptical. I think yeah. there's a lot of kind of. Mm, um, not not blind optimism, but there's just a lot of um, how do I say this carefully? Um, you don't have to. We don't. We don't. That's that's why that's why we do this podcast. Well, I mean, I think it's no. worthwhile yeah. to do research. Yeah, right? yeah absolutely. absolutely. It's it's just it's. I think folks kind of glomming on to like an idea and running with it, and then applying those ideas and man in how they manage systems or what they're adding, what kind of inoculants with this kind of dream and idea that hasn't been verified fully, I guess. There's just um, still a lot more science to be done. What's Gail's last name? Wilson. Inert Wilson. So so this is something she's always said, and it, it stuck in my head a long, long time ago. You know, um, NRCS, even pre-NRCS, which was the Resource Conservation Service, or what, what was it before NRCS, Jason? Soil Conservation, Soil Conservation Service. Brought in Montiflora Rose brought in kudzu and these were all things that we were brought in for soil conservation mm-hmm. land conservation the now are invasive species and so dr gail wilson once said when i asked her about the thought about bringing in microbes she's like how do you know you're not introducing the next kudzu mm-hmm. underground absolutely and man that that has lived with me yeah as a very fearful thought and you can't see that you can't see that well, and, and and Gail's a pretty thoughtful woman. I mean, scientist, she's awesome. Like, isn't she doing some work, like, with Carver about, like, or somebody looking at introducing some of these, like, mycorrhizal fungi to some of these lines? Maybe not Maybe wheat, so, but something? In sorghum. She did Sor- a lot of stuff it's, okay, on, it's on, sorghum. with phosphorus, mm-hmm. heavily on phosphorus. You know, so that right. was... Um, so she, know, I mean, she understands and... Is like I say, one of yeah. these. She's one of these people who's doing research yep. to try to manipulate yep. the biology of plants and soil. Yeah. I don't know if she's manipulating the biology. Way. So she she's looking at species type, especially in underdeveloped countries, to utilize. Well, you know, yeah. Are there certain species that develop better relationships with those fungi that can then yeah. improve phosphorus use efficiency in underfertilized soils? What happens if we were to fertilize this soil and Maybe watch we that have her on? Yeah. Yeah, I think her yeah. former postdoc, Adam Cobb, Adam. was working yep, on that. That is exactly Adam's project. Yeah, looking at different cultivars or, mm-hmm. or genotypes. Yep. Yeah. But then there's then like there's this black box type thought process where you can, like, say I, I was at a meeting one time, and and these individuals in this group, they suggested that it would be better to genetically modify the microbiology of the soil than it was to genetically modify hybrid corn. And I'm like, it's a little so scary. how is that any different? Other than I can see the corn. Right. And, kill and the corn. if I wanted to, if the corn started attacking me, I think I could kill it. <laughs> but if the microbes, I mean, you know, I mean, it's just yeah. a weird thing to say yeah, that no. it's more acceptable and less risky. If really? you're scared of, you know, genetic modification, but 
that it, that it's less it's more exec- acceptable to modify the, the that's microbes. That's what they said. They're no longer in business because because the microbes aren't in your food. Right. No, I I get that point, but just thinking about like the interactions oh, and yeah. everything that's you know the things that are changing day to day, hour to hour. When you talk about microbes, it's very different from like a plant rooted in the ground. You know, it's one. Yeah, it's just well, different. I, don't know. I can compare. run away from that plant. <laughs> no, exactly. And I don't know. You, yeah, you could have, for instance, like I did just yeah. a weird thing. So uh, on mm. on that on that same thought process, it, is is it possible to totally kill kill the soil? I guess to to to, oh, to where question. to where there there is no more activity under there, and then how how is it possible to restart the system? You know, naturally, not not introduce you know enzymes and such but 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 is there a way if if it does air quotes die is there a way to bring it back am i am, am i asking dumb questions no, here no I, I mean there are soils that would be deemed dumb. like kind of uh, <laughs> it's, 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 it's moderately it's dumb. Dumb. It's, yeah okay, okay. i i'm and the only master's degree in here amongst no, phd's i'm sorry I don't know if I have, you know, the answer, but I mean, there are definitely soils that are unhealthy, right? They're right. less microbially active, have low carbon, low organic matter. And I, I guess, I mean, my first instinct is always to increase organic matter. That just seems like a simple, simple right. first step. Because um, once you support that, you have all these, you know, other adjacent functions that start to ramp up. Um, I actually... Um, have a paper coming out soon that I'm co-author on that's talking about this idea of healthy, unhealthy soils and how you can support, you know, the multifunctionality of soil versus kind of one that's overly reliant on certain inputs. Um, you know, but I think, um, I don't know what you all think, like what would you do to try to recover soil? Well, I mean, the thing that comes to mind when he makes, he he poses that question is when I was in Virginia we worked on plastic culture production of tomatoes and we killed the soil with a product called methyl bromide that's no longer legal to use in the United States <laughs> gotcha <clears throat> because it would yeah. kill everything and yeah. if you got a little whiff of it it'd kill you too and you know or at least but, some brain but cells. there was a key thing that oh. you said <laughs> is that we that when we did that yeah. Then we gave the reason they did it is to reduce the, the the potential for like disease and pests and things that would be coming out of the soil, and it was cheaper, at least perceived cheaper, to give that plant everything it needed through drip tape fertigation and protect it at all costs, aka kill the soil, than it was to risk an outbreak of a soil-borne disease or insect. Oh. <clears throat> That's why they killed but- it. But Dave, and I think might answer you had to kill it every year because the microbial population oh. would be able to regain it would even regain, after that. And God knows what it would really come back <laughs> Yeah, because And we would usually rotate, you know, out of, I think they'd rotate, I don't know what the exact rotation was, but they wouldn't grow tomatoes on the same ground every year. But it is kind of an interesting thing. But like I say, the key point that I, that she said that I caught is that if you do that, you've got to give that soil everything that crop needs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know what I mean. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we did. Well, I guess I guess going back to that thing of can you really actively kill the soil? Like even with that, you know, because you have those not permanently those, for sure. those things that you know those different organisms that cyst. 
you know, yeah. form these long-term, just, if you will, storage structures. You know, we see that with, like, nematodes that run out of moisture. They mm-hmm. just, they go into a, a cyst form, and then when moisture returns, they just come mm-hmm. out of it. So, I mean, realistically, yeah, you can kill the active portion of soil, but I don't I don't know if you could ever kill the soil. Mm-hmm. Something's no. going to survive. The the Like you said, though, is that what, what typically will flourish first is, is you think of, Soil is an ecosystem. It's those early succession. Yeah, no different than land. Fast yeah, no, growing. Yeah, and, yeah. and so yeah. if you if you want to think of it from a, a field that we have massive disturbance on, the weeds are are what comes mm-hmm. first, and and it's those those really really opportunistic bacteria that'll come first. Is those those you know other larger species, the fungus, the actinomyces, et cetera, et cetera, that take years to potentially reestablish. That mm-hmm. that is is what you would do a lot of damage to, but the soil will return. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's 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 yeah. You, I don't know if you could ever kill it, but you could you could deem it uh, uninhabitable or unmanageable for a short period of time. I'm just wondering. I mean, I got some land up by Sayer. I was no. It just keeps going. It does. It, it, <laughs> it's it's the joke that never ends. And thank you for listening in on this conversation of the Red Dirt Agronomy Podcast. If you would like to join the conversation, just send us an email, podcast at reddirtagronomy.com, or send us a tweet. Our handle is Red Dirt Ag. We would all like to thank Dr. Andrea Yelling from Oklahoma State University for joining us on the podcast today. And to find out more about her or any of the guests, Along with any of the resources that we talked about today or any other time on the podcast, visit reddirtagronomy.com. For Dr. Josh Lofton, Dr. Jason Warren, Dr. Brian Arnell, I am Dave Deacon, and we want to thank you for listening. The proceeding is a copyrighted recording of AgNow Media, LLC, 2022. And yes, all rights are reserved.